Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Welcome to Digital Voices, the podcast that's exclusively for chief digital officers across all of health, life and sciences, including payers and providers and biotech. And so we're actually going to focus a little bit more on the biotech this particular episode. Really excited about it and really excited to introduce our guest. But before we get there, Sydney, and this is related to some of the questions that are coming up. What's your favorite kind of ice cream? My favorite kind of ice cream. Oh, coffee ice cream is my favorite, but I like it with toppings, with Oreos. Oreos are my favorite ice cream topping. The reason I ask is because our guest today, Mike, who's the CEO of MedCrypt, he's a disruptor of ice cream. And so we're going to dive a little bit into that. So with that, hey, Mike, I just want to introduce you to our audience today. Thanks for joining us. It's, uh, it's great to be here. And Mike, you have a really interesting last name. Uh, pronounce it for us. Tell us your full name and, and sort of the ethnic background of it. Yeah, my name is Mike Kajeski. Uh, I am uh, from a uh, half Polish, half Irish family outside Philadelphia. Um, I haven't really connected a whole lot with my uh, ethnic roots since everybody in our lineage has been in the United States for a long time. Um, but the you know the current conflicts in Europe have made me much more interested in, in where my family came from. Yeah, no, I, I love the name, and I and it's uh, very cultural for sure. So you are the CEO of Medcrypt, as I mentioned, and. I found your byline, though, even more interesting, and that is lover of technology, healthcare, and burritos. Uh, that is correct. Yeah. You know, I, I spend uh, more time than I care to admit on Twitter and LinkedIn. You know, my, my job as CEO of a, a healthcare technology startup requires me to be meeting people all the time and networking and reaching out. And I don't tend to take myself very seriously. So when I see people whose LinkedIn bios are, you know, disruptor of healthcare or a thought leader or innovator, I don't know that I really qualify as any of those things. So I ask myself if I was really, you know, if I was a disruptor of anything, what would it be? Either ice cream or burritos. So I found a way to work those two things into my profile. I, lo- I love that. Yeah, because I think some of us take ourselves way too serious. I'm certainly guilty of that at times. So, hey, the two questions we ask everyone is favorite music. So when you are chilling, eating ice cream or burritos, what might be playing in the background? Yeah, so I don't. Uh, th- those of you who are listening and not watching probably can't see the background, but behind me here, I have a, a whole record collection. I've got a drum set and a bunch of guitars over here in the corner. So uh, when I was in high school, I was an aspiring uh, punk rock musician uh, and told my parents I wasn't going to go to college because I was just going to play in a punk band. And my, my parents put a stop to that pretty quickly. Uh, so I'm, I'm a failed punk musician uh, and, and, uh, and now working in the healthcare field. So, Mike, what were some of the, your early influences in punk? Because I was sort of a, a punker back in my day as well. Oh, so my favorite band of all time is a band called Minor Threat. Uh, there are a couple of things that I love about Minor Threat. So they were they were a band from the early 80s in Washington, D.C. Um, they are probably most famous for... Um, describing an ideology called straight edge, which is uh, the uh, 
when somebody uh, chooses to not drink or do drugs, um, I saw lots of people in, around me growing up who were suffering the consequences of alcoholism and other drug use and decided very early on that I did not want anything to do with that. So when I heard a song by a punk band talking about how cool it is to not drink, it immediately resonated with me. That's that's the first thing that that, uh, that Minor Threat is known for. Um, but the second thing is the, the uh, singer of Minor Threat, uh, is co-founder of a record label called Discord Records, and in the late '70s, early '80s, uh, they didn't—they uh, had a hard time finding a record label that would put out their music. So they started their own record label and started putting out their own records and seven inches and materials. And it was really my introduction to entrepreneurship—the idea that you didn't need permission by some larger entity to do what it is you wanted to do. You could just put out your own music. Um, so to this day, I'm, I'm 40 now, and I spend most of my time, you know, working on healthcare related stuff. Uh, but I, I would very literally not be where I am today were it not for those, those two lessons that I learned from, uh, from the, the, the punk rock scene of the 19 early 1980s. Oh man, I love it. And that's why, you know, we asked some of the questions. One is really just to get to know the person a little bit. And second is oftentimes it does tie in with the rest of our life, right. And the rest of our career. And that's, yeah. that's pretty that's pretty fun. Yeah, uh, some other time we'll we'll chat more about uh, punk influences and, and all that kind of stuff. So what about your personal life message or mantra? Do you have words that you sort of live by that guide you as a person or, you know, as a CEO of a company? Um you know, I, I don't. I don't know that I have anything that would be easily art, uh, able to articulate. Uh, the, the the two thoughts that come to mind: one is obviously treat others as you want to be treated. And working in the startup world, there are lots of really great, smart people who are there to help you out, and there are a, a fair number of people who maybe do not have your best interest at heart as well. Um, and I've I've seen in my career um, some people profit in the short term at the expense of others. And I very much don't want to be one of those people, right? I, I firmly believe that uh, by helping those around you, uh, ultimately, in the long term, everybody will end up doing better, uh, both financially and maybe karmically. I don't know. So d definitely golden rule, treat others as you want to be treated. Um, but then, you know, the, the second idea is when, when I first finished undergrad, I was a, a physics major in undergrad. You know, physics is an interesting major because when you tell people you're a physics major, they assume that you're smart, but you're really not qualified for any particular job. There aren't a whole lot of jobs out there for physics undergrads. Um, I, I ended up teaching high school physics for a couple of years and really, really loved it uh, and loved being in the classroom with the students. And it was a very sort of stable job. But a couple of years in, the stability was starting to give me some anxiety, right? Like, hey, if I'm doing this at 25. Am I going to be doing the same thing at 62? Man, that's that's really, a, you know, that, that's a, it's a, a weird thought. Um, so th this idea that we're, we're here on earth for a relatively short period of time and we've got one chance to do something really interesting with your life. Um, a lot of people find or a lot of people assume that entrepreneurship is a more risky career trajectory. And I guess in some cases it is, but we've got one shot at this. I want to do something really interesting with my life and try to make the world a, a better place. Um, and much to uh, my wife's chagrin, I think that is the right word. I left the, yeah. the stable employment of a high school physics teacher and now run a, a health tech startup. So we're, we're here for a short period of time. Do something really interesting with your life. Hey, I, I love it. You and I uh, are a similar, similar mind for sure. So, you know, that's part of your 
personal and professional story that I wanted to talk about next, you know, as part of your long, longer introduction. And we already know a ton about you from types of food that you eat, uh, type of music you like, uh, your, some of your educational background. And but tell us more. Tell us. So you left. So you left that stability. And and then tell us that journey to, you know, starting a med tech company. Yeah, so I was teaching uh, teaching high school physics, thinking about what I wanted to do next, and um, for uh, for many uh, academically inclined science majors, uh, medical school is is an obvious sort of uh, thought process. Um, I, my I was fortunate enough that my first year of undergrad was my mother's first year of med school. So she was a non-traditional medical school student. And uh, when I was teaching high school physics, she was doing her residency and her, her, uh, her internship after med school. And I remember thinking, okay, I don't want to be a high school physics teacher. I want to work in some field where I help people. That sounds like healthcare. Maybe I'll be a doctor. So I went and shadowed my mom for a day. And for the first half of the day, I uh, followed her and her fellow residents around. Uh, I think they were doing like an ICU uh, 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 internship. And it was the first half of the day. And then the second half of the day, I spent with a radiologist. Because if you're a physics undergrad, radiology makes a lot of sense. And I remember asking the, um, the chief resident as we were walking around the hospital, hey, if you had this to do over again, would you go to med school? And his answer was, hell no. I've been in school for 18 years. Uh, I, uh, you think doctors make a lot of money. I'm going to make like $45,000 this year. I drive a broken down minivan. Uh, and, uh, I'm just, a, you know, I work all day and people are yelling at me. So go be an investment banker or something. And I was like, Oh wow, that is a, that, that, that was not exactly what I wanted to hear. And then spending the second half of the day with a radiologist, we were just in a dark room looking at chest x-rays and talking into a dictaphone for four hours. And I thought, man, I, I really like the technology behind x-rays, but the notion of sitting in a dark room for four hours a day didn't seem super appealing. So I found this field called medical physics, which is the um, the application of physics principles into healthcare. Um, found a couple of graduate programs in medical physics. Applied to some grad schools. Um, while I was applying to grad school, found a, a a local company that built radiation oncology facilities. They would actually build the structures and hospitals that the radiation treatment devices were housed within. And I worked for that company for a year, doing some radiation safety calculations. And while I was there, found that the way that radiation safety is assessed in hospitals um, was a little bit too manual. So I was uh, fortunate enough to be accepted to the University of Pennsylvania's medical physics program. Uh, and while I was starting grad school, I started a software company uh, called Gamma Basics that built a product to assess radiation safety compliance for hospitals. And the short version of the story is I ended up doing a master's in medical physics, did an MBA at, at Wharton, um, and then left business school to work on Gamma Basics full-time. And about a year and a half after graduation, Gamma Basics was acquired by a, a big medical device manufacturer called Varian Medical Systems. Um, so it was a really interesting experience going from uh, being the, the, the user, the, you know, the prospective user that had a problem, identifying the problem, identifying the technology that would solve that problem, starting the company, raising money from investors, building prototypes, getting customers, and then eventually selling the company to one of our customers um, was a really, really great experience and, and uh, sort of uh, you know, learning exercise. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's, that's how I ended up where I am now. No, that, that's great. And uh, you know, kind of threaded through that story is really uh, leadership and clearly you're you're a leader. You've done a lot of these uh, entrepreneurial things and as well as uh, some more traditional things. How do you evolve? So a lot of people listen 
you know, they're all aspiring leaders or they're established leaders that want to get better. And so I'm always really curious, what do you do to keep sort of sharpening the saw and stay, you know, on that edge of, of leadership? Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I don't know that I consider myself a leader per se. Like when I think of lead, you think of like General Patton, right? I think most people would agree General Patton's a leader. I don't know that General Patton and I have a whole lot in common. Uh, in fact, I um, <laughs> there are two stories about my education that my wife loves to tell our children. The first is that even though I'm a physics major, it took me three times to get through calculus too. Uh, wasn't, wasn't, a, wasn't a very dutiful uh, student in mathematics in my early undergrad career. Uh, the second story is in business school, the, uh, the only class that I got below a B in was a course called Managing People at Work. And I got a C plus in Managing People at Work. Now, it, it remains to be seen whether or not that grade was, was accurate or not. But um, I, I don't really think of myself as a as a leader first. I, I really think of myself as somebody who's interested in problems and solving problems and applying technology to solve those problems. And I've just, you know, I guess two times in my career found myself in a position where it didn't seem like anybody else was going to solve this problem. So I was going to have to do it. Um, and in order to do that, you got to build a team and you got to convince people to join you. Um, but I, I, I very much try to surround myself by people who are smarter than me and who are better at what it is they do than I am. Um, so ideally, if I'm successful with MedCrypt, you know, eventually we'll have thousands of employees, all of whom are better at doing their respective jobs than I am. And I'll get to, you know, show up at meetings and listen and applaud. So, uh, so yeah, I, 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 I don't know exactly how I would describe my leadership style other than uh, re- reluctant a bit um, and really <laughs> just uh, problem and customer focused. Yeah, love it. So... I know the audience is probably saying, Ed, when are you going to ask? When are you going to ask? What's Mike's favorite flavor of ice cream being a disruptor of ice cream? Yep. So I am a a longtime vegan. And for a long time, those of us who did not uh, eat... Uh, you know, drink, drink dairy or eat ice cream, didn't have a lot of good ice cream to choose from. But in the last five years, there has been a revolution in non-dairy ice cream. Um, in fact, uh, my company, MedCrypt, was fortunate enough to go through uh, the startup accelerator Y Combinator. And one of our fellow Y Combinator companies was a company called Eclipse Foods. And they make non-dairy ice cream that is, it's not just like, you know, passable ice cream. It is m- creamier and more delicious than any ice cream I remember having from, uh, you know, back when I ate normal ice cream. Um, and I, I would say a second, you know, second to any Eclipse flavor, um, the Ben and Jerry's line of non-dairy ice cream is really good, in particular their fish food flavor. So it's, uh, I think it's a reasonable facsimile for the normal fish food flavor. But short, short answer, I'm going with Ben and Jerry's fish food. Yeah, we're, we're a, a big vegan family. I, I stray a little bit, but... We discovered some ice cream uh, this past weekend as well. I don't, you know, it was at, at an ice cream shop, so I don't know specifically who made the vegan ice cream, but there was no way you could tell the difference. So uh, there's some good stuff. It's really come come a long way talking about leadership and <laughs> sort of evolution and innovation, you know. Yeah. So we're going to jump into medical devices. So what is the problem that MedCrypt is solving for for your clients today? Yes, I'll tell you a um potentially apocryphal origin story for, for MedCrypt and the problem that we're solving. So I mentioned that I had a, a company called Gamma Basics that was acquired by a big uh, medical device manufacturer. I joined that device manufacturer who uh, for, worked in a product management role for three and a half years. Um, that company's main product is a, a giant x-ray shooting robot. 
basically. It's a linear accelerator used to treat radiation, uh, used to treat cancer with radiation. And there are somewhere between 10 and 30 different computers that need to work together to deliver x-rays at the right position inside the patient uh, in the right amounts to result in therapeutic treatment. And one of the interesting things about radiation oncology is the... Uh, the margins for error on how much radiation you can deliver are really slim. So if you're treating, uh, if if any radiation oncologists are listening, uh, I apologize if I get these numbers, if they're not exactly right, but if you're treating a tumor on a patient's spine, um, you aim to deliver something like 60 units of radiation, 60 grays to the tumor. Um, If the location in which you deliver that radiation is off by a handful of millimeters, or if the amount of radiation you deliver varies by 10 or 20 percent, you can paralyze the patient. Um, And the the way that these medical devices deliver radiation is via essentially, you know, a text file that says, hey, deliver, you know, move the robot to this set of positions and turn the x-ray tube on for this amount of time. So when I was working for this manufacturer, I, I heard secondhand that a hospital was going around to a bunch of different medical device manufacturers saying, uh, we're treating the Dalai Lama for prostate cancer, and we're concerned about um, a cybersecurity incident where somebody would hack the the radiation treatment and harm the patient. So we've we've done some penetration tests on a bunch of different systems that we're using to treat the patient. We found these security vulnerabilities. Please go go fix these issues. Um, I don't really know if if that if that is exactly what the the hospital was saying. But this was this is what I was hearing sort of in my network of people in the medical device space. And um, you know the the interesting thing about it is at the time, which was about ten years ago at this point, most medical device manufacturers assumed that cybersecurity was the responsibility of the hospital, right? Like use a firewall in your network and use some antivirus software. And if there's a problem, it's, it's the hospital's problem. It's not ours. But the hospital um, was, was a, a rather forward-thinking hospital in terms of cybersecurity and realized that we're treating patients with medical devices whose configurations are approved by the FDA. And even the smallest change in the configuration of these medical devices um, you know, adding antivirus software to a device could technically introduce a new failure mode into the device that could harm the patient. And, and therefore, there's really not a lot that hospitals can do to improve the cybersecurity posture of individual medical devices. Um, there's there's an anecdote I heard about a, uh, a hospital uh, in which a patient was re- receiving a stent in their heart, and there was a cardiac monitor being used while the patient was was having the, the stent placed, um, and the cardiac monitor was basically a Windows computer um, that you know was attached to some peripherals. Well, somebody had installed antivirus software on the cardiac monitor, and the antivirus software decided that it was time for a software update in the middle of the procedure, and it rebooted the cardiac monitor. And for something like three minutes, the cl- the clinicians were not able to monitor the patient's heart rate. Because the antivirus software was updating, so that's kind of the you know an example of the problem that we're facing here. So in 2015, my, my co-founders and I started looking into the problem, and we realized that there was a lot of work for hospitals to do around cybersecurity in the hospital. Um, ransomware had not yet become a scourge uh, upon hospitals in 2015. But there was some discussion about the possibility of it really becoming a problem. But we also realized that medical device manufacturers were going to have regulatory requirements around cybersecurity, right, to build devices that are safe and effective. And in today's world, safe includes, you know, cybersecurity components. Um, And I think most 
people who work at medical device manufacturers would acknowledge that that most device manufacturers have one, maybe two core competencies and generally software development and cybersecurity historically has not been one of those two core competencies. So we saw an opportunity to build some tools that would help the, um, the engineers building medical devices, uh, build cybersecurity features directly into devices so that these devices can go out into the world. They can operate on a hospital network or operate at a patient's home, um, and have some resiliency if there's, you know, general malware traveling throughout the, the hospital network or if somebody's actually targeting a specific device on a specific patient? Yeah, the issue is, is significant because I can tell you from, you know, when I was, as a longtime CIO, uh, this was always a struggle for us. And the stories that you told, even though the names of the hospitals might be different, are real. They, ha- they happen a lot. They still happen today. And so what we ended up having to do, because it is an issue and a pain point that you're aiming to solve is, you know, we tried to form our own coalitions, you know, amongst ourselves to then sort of force the hand, if you will, of a lot of these medical device companies to really kind of get up to date because we felt like a lot of them were behind in terms of their cybersecurity uh, profile. And as a result, it would hurt us. And you're right. There's only so much that we could do on our end. And so it's a real issue. And that's why I, I, I love what MedCrypt does and what, what you're doing in the industry, because it, it has been a huge challenge. It still is today. And with the number of devices continuing to grow, uh, it's it's more critical than ever. And and I wasn't sure, Mike, if you if you knew any percentages or, or just the amount of growth that is happening with medical devices in healthcare. I mean, it's not it's not becoming less. It's definitely growing. Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways to, to measure it, um, and I don't have any exact statistics off the top of my head. But the the overall growth in the medical device market exceeds you know, general inflation, right? So we're looking at an eight, you know, eight, 10, 12% growth year on year. But the interesting thing when you dig a little deeper is that while the total dollars spent on medical devices may be growing at sort of a modest pace, the unit volume, like the number of devices that are sold out into the field is increasing much, much faster, right? Because the general cost of technology comes down over time. So therefore, if you were to look uh, 30 years ago at the medical device uh, market, a lot of that spend was on, um, you know, CT scanners, which are sold in, you know, like uh, hundreds or, uh, you know, maybe a handful of thousands per year. Whereas today you've got, you know, like the um, you know, uh, glucose monitors that go home with patients that have reusable patches that are technically computers that go in patients' arms. And those are being sold in, you know, in the millions. In fact, I heard a, a number that uh, there's something like, 200,000 CPAP devices sold per week, um, which is a, a crazy number, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about millions and millions of these devices. So the, the actual number of units of devices going out into the field is growing very, very quickly. Yeah. And, and I know I served, you know, one shift, basically one day a week in the OR in anesthesia where I came from. And I was just amazed because I hadn't been in the OR environment probably from 20 years at that point. I was amazed at the number of increased devices, and many of them were standalone, which presented a problem in itself because literally there was some uh, manual entry of data, you know, from one system to the next. And so, right to solve it, because we're all smart technologists, to solve that, we build interfaces. But then no one really thought about you're building an interface from this unprotected standalone device that's probably pretty older than, you know, other devices that you might find in an operating room. 
And then you're building that interface into, you know, a more modern, you know, like an EHR, electronic health record or something. And you haven't really thought through just the the cyber implications. And so you multiply that by, you know, all the ORs in the world and it, and the number of devices coming in. It, it really is a significant uh, issue. And then what, what are your thoughts? Where, where do you think we're headed, you know, in terms of hospital at home? So, you know, I'm a big believer proponent that healthcare will shift largely to the home. Uh, what about the devices? Are, are you, are you, what, what's your thoughts around that? You know, you work with all these medical device companies. Are you, are you seeing that trend early stages of that trend so that we'll see even more devices, but these devices will actually be in the home? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not telling you anything that you or your listeners don't listen to, but the, the overall growth in healthcare spending in the U S is unsustainable, right? We, we can't get to the point where we're spending 200% of GDP on healthcare. There's, there's some upper limit here. And the, the only ways that you can really decrease the amount that you're spending, um, while still maintaining high quality and, and, uh, you know, high availability of healthcare is, is moving patients who would otherwise end up in, you know, in ER and then going into the ICU, trying to treat them in more, uh, you know, cost effective, but equally, efficacious ways and treating patients at home is one way to do that. You know, a personal example of this that I'm experiencing now, much to my frustration is I've had a persistent cough for like a month. It's nothing, nothing big, but my wife's like, Hey, you've been, you know, coughing occasionally for a month. You should go get it looked at. So I call my primary care doc and they want to do a, uh, you know, a telemedicine appointment, which is great I do a telemedicine, uh, appointment with a, with a PA or a, uh, not, a, a not an MD, which is fine. They, they gave me some recommendations, took the recommendations, nothing changed. And I called the doctor's office. Hey, can I come in and have somebody, uh, you know, listen to my chest with a stethoscope? Nope. There's two other telemedicine appointments that I need to do before they'll actually let me come into the doctor's office. And from a patient perspective, that's frustrating, but I understand why, you know, why they're doing that both from a uh, COVID uh, safety perspective, but also from a, you know, overall healthcare spending perspective. So there's just a a huge proliferation of devices that are designed to either, um, go home with the patient. You know, glucose monitoring is a great one. Um, you know, the bedside monitors that uh, patients with pacemakers use, um, as well as software as a medical device that utilizes hardware that most of us already have, smartphones that can provide a lot of uh, a lot of different healthcare functions. You know, I've got this. Um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with a whoop. So I've got this, this little device here, which is a vital sign monitor that I wear on my wrist, which monitors, uh, you know, a bunch of different metrics, including heart rate and O2 saturation and gives you an analysis of how your, you know, your, uh, exercise regimen is going. And this thing, the hardware on this device, I don't know, probably costs like $4 or something. It's amazing what we can do with, with devices that go home with the patient. And that's, that's a great thing that these devices are going home and, helping healthcare uh, become a little bit less expensive than it would otherwise be. However, every time one of these things are connected, that data is at risk going over the internet. Now, not all of the data is so high risk that we need to, you know, implement some crazy cybersecurity structure on it. But when you have patients with pacemakers whose systems are receiving over the air firmware updates, we better be really certain that those firmware updates are secure and that malicious software isn't ending up on some bedside monitor or pacemaker programmer. That, that stuff's very important. Yeah. So I had a question around standards. So there's a lot of standards in healthcare to ensure, you know, quality and safety. And, you know, we've got high trust and HIPAA and all those sort of things that sort of help guide things. What about on the medical device side? Is there a set of standards yet that everyone aspires to or must must attain? Um, so, uh, the short answer is not really, 
Um, so there are standards bodies that are working on or, or, you know, have published standards that device manufacturers frequently cite. Um, you know, ISO 2900 is one of them. There are some NIST cybersecurity frameworks. Um, Underwriters Laboratory has both a set of, um, you know, I don't know what they would call them, uh, you know, guidance or requirements, as well as the ability to get your your development process certified by UL. And, and all of these things are helpful and they're all really, really good. Uh, I'm glad that they exist. However, I've never heard a a hacker say, "Hey, I, I tried to hack this device, but it turned out it was you know ISO twenty nine hundred compliant, and therefore I couldn't hack it." That's uh, that, that's not exactly how this works, right? Um, and I am I am always interested to see the gap between what a medical device manufacturer thinks they're doing around security and what actually ends up in the product, right? So, a qu- quick example of this. Um, a prospective customer we talked to a few years ago said, um, hey, we don't need your help because we already did encryption in our product. I'm like, oh, okay, that's good to hear that. What, what, is, what does did encryption mean? <laughs> and it turns out that what they did is they took their Microsoft SQL server and they checked the box in the configuration which says encrypt the database. And this is great. You should do that. Encrypt your, your database. Um, but to think that that is a comprehensive um, uh, way to comply with this notion of you know keeping patient data private is uh, is is not if really effective, right? There's some other things that you have to do on top of that. So um, there are standards that are being worked on. I haven't seen any of them that have been so effective so as to ensure that the companies following those standards really have comprehensive controls in place. But it's a good start. Um, the the two most effective. Um, things that I've seen happen in the last five years around medical device cybersecurity is number one, the FDA publishing guidance around cybersecurity and medical devices and either recalling devices that have unacceptable cybersecurity issues in them um, or refusing to accept the regulatory submittals of new devices under development that don't meet their security standards. This has been incredibly impactful and every device manufacturer we talk to cites FDA requirements. Now, the FDA would likely admit that their um, ability to enforce these guidance uh, requirements is maybe not what, where it should be. They're looking to find better ways to to ensure that they're enforcing the same requirements across all 510K submittals, for example. Um, but it's a really good start. And number two, there have been um, a group, there's a, a group of hospitals that put together common procurement language around cybersecurity and medical devices, where, um, and I know that Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Kaiser Permanente are three of them, I forget the other two, um, basically saying, we're not going to buy any devices that don't meet these particular criteria. And the criteria they set forth are relevant relatively, uh, they're very reasonable, right? And man, nothing lights a fire under a medical device manufacturer more than hearing their sales reps say, hey, we literally can't sell a device to Mayo Clinic because it doesn't satisfy this checklist. Well, that that becomes a, a tier one issue inside the device manufacturer. Yeah, that was the consortium I was uh, referring to that, you know, our my previous organization helped start. And that, that's a really yep. good, good start. So 
Mike, wow, we covered a lot. Everything from punk rock uh, to ice cream, sort of to some leadership philosophies and things that you do to to uh, make sure that you're leading in the right direction. And then we talked about medical devices, the proliferation, not only on the acute care side, but also on the home care side, really the, the sort of the reason why MedCrypt exists and, and really to keep us all safe and our patients safe uh, when they have to end up using one of these types of medical devices. And so, yeah, we covered a, a broad spectrum, but we, we had to do it rather quickly. So I wanted to leave the last comment for you. Is there anything that we missed that we should have touched on or anything that we did touch on, but we need to you know take an extra scoop on? Yeah, a couple quick thoughts. Um, number one, there was a story a couple of years ago where a particular pacemaker manufacturer had a pretty significant security issue. And my grandmother happened to have that pacemaker in her chest. And she said, hey, I heard on Fox News that my pacemaker can be hacked by ISIS. Should I have it taken out? No, you should not have it taken out. If you are a patient, you've been prescribed a medical device by your care provider, continue using that medical device. The, the, the uh, clinical benefit of the device in almost all cases outweighs the cybersecurity risk. That's number one. Number two, if you are a hospital, uh, your hospital CIO, or you're you know in any way in, involved in cybersecurity in the hospital level, the the number one thing that you can do um, to to improve the, the security posture of medical devices is to let the device manufacturers you're buying products from know that this is this is a high priority for you, right? If if uh, if these device if Medtronic isn't hearing from hospitals that hey it was really important to us that our pacemaker programmers be secure, then it's it's hard for Medtronic to prioritize those sorts of things, right? So the, these device manufacturers they want to hear from their customers that this is a, a high priority. And then the last thought is, you know, if you happen to work for a device manufacturer and you're wondering, okay, like, what are the odds that my particular medical device is going to be hacked by a bad guy, right? Um, I would say that, well, whatever the odds of that happening are, the odds that either a customer or a regulator are not going to be happy with the security posture of your device are much, much higher. So this is this is really, it's not just a patient safety issue. It's also a top line revenue issue. Yeah. So if you want to continue to sell connected medical devices in the US and Europe and around the world, there's a certain level of cybersecurity design that needs to go into your device. So we're not talking about a hypothetical problem of somebody hacking your device. We're talking about a very real dollars and cents issue where you may not be able to sell your product if you don't satisfy these, these FDA requirements. Mike, super practical way to end. <clears throat> Great advice for all of us that serve across health and life sciences, because as we know, it's not about just providers that are leveraging medical devices, but it's everyone. It's, it's life sciences. It's uh, the payer side and obviously clearly biotech So, and med tech. So thank you so much and, and giving us uh, sort of the inside scoop, if you will, back to the ice cream reference there kind of subtle and, uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll definitely chat again. So thanks for being on our show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. All right. That wraps up digital voices. Talk to you at the next drop. Thank you for listening to digital voices podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening. 